Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode features brief but graphic details of sexual violence against a child. Listener discretion is advised. A dead body found in a backyard leads to an investigation and begs the question, how well do you really know who is on the other end of an internet conversation? This is Method and Madness, Episode 17, Miranda and Elliot Barber, Craigslist Killers. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method and Madness. Craigslist, created by American Craig Newmark in 1995, is a website for internet users to post classified ads. Anyone seeking rentals, wanting to sell their car, adopt a cat, or at one time find companionship, can log in and filter their search results to their area. Of course, with any site where users can come together and barter or trade or pay for services, there shall be some level of nefarious behavior. As genuine as your reason is for going onto the site, trying to sell a dresser or to meet someone, you don't really know who is on the other end of the conversation and if their intentions are as innocuous as yours. This episode is the first of a series I'll be releasing on crimes that were committed through the ruse of a Craigslist ad. Craigslist didn't invent victim luring through ads. It just gave predators a new venue for seeking their prey. Before Craigslist, before the internet was in everyone's homes and in their pocket, a good old-fashioned newspaper could be used to access classified ads. And whether it was personal ads, job-seeking, or buying and selling items, if somebody were evil enough they could open their newspaper and use it to help them hunt down the vulnerable. In the mid-90s, Illinois native and convicted child rapist Paul Rung, while on probation, sought victims by utilizing the classified ads. He would contact women who were selling their homes under the guise of a prospective buyer. He raped and murdered six women and one child between 1995 and 1997. Rung was convicted of murder in 2006 and sentenced to death, but the sentence was later commuted to life in prison. Until 2018, Craigslist was a popular go-to for its personal ads. It was free, it was easy to use, and there was a level of anonymity, if that's your thing. Up until 2009, one could find what they wanted in the erotic services section, which changed to the adult services section in 2010 before that category left the site entirely later that same year. After 2010, people seeking or selling the so-called adult services could use the personal section as a sort of workaround. 
Which brings us to today's case and how a Craigslist ad was used to lure a victim. In previous episodes, we've reviewed a few of the various ways that killers select their victims. The gain killer, the Black Widow like Marie Hilly, chose those closest to her as their deaths would benefit her. The terrorist, the bombers, the mass murderers. Their selected locations are key, and the victims are usually random as long as the impact is strong enough that it carries the killer's message. There's the thrill killer, also known as the hedonist thrill killer, most notably the Zodiac killer who wrote in his bizarre letters to newspapers how much he enjoyed killing and, quote, getting his rocks off. The thrill killer either plans and premeditates their kill or commits murder at random, all for the sheer excitement it brings them before, during, and immediately after the act. The adrenaline rush. A thrill killer doesn't typically get sexual satisfaction from their acts. It's the planning and the hunting of their prey that does it for them. Let's dive in. Troy LaFerrara from Port Treverton, Pennsylvania, about 165 miles northwest of Philadelphia, was a married man of 42 when he answered an ad posted by a woman in the personal section of Craigslist in 2013. Troy was born June 20, 1971, to parents Harriet and Thomas and grew up in Port Treverton, a tiny town of about 450 residents, according to census data from the year 2000. Troy went to college at Pennsylvania State University, where he got his bachelor's degree in civil engineering and went on to earn his professional engineer's license and worked for Lycoming County Landfill by Cummings and Smith as an engineer. In 2003, he began dating Colleen Keeney, and the pair married on June 11, 2011. Colleen has described Troy as a sweet and gentle outdoorsy type. They did not have any children. On the night of Monday, November 11, 2013, Troy left his mother's home in Port Treverton after a visit, but he never returned to his home. The next morning, November 12th, Brittany Stetler was inside her home in Sunbury, Pennsylvania, a small city about 13 miles from Port Treverton. She was making breakfast when she glanced out her kitchen window and saw a dead body in her backyard. She was shocked at the sight. It was a man face down, blood on his body and on his arms. She had no idea who he was or how he ended up in her yard and called 911 panicked. Police responded to the call on the 200 block of Catawissa Avenue. Behind the quiet residential area in a grassy alley was Troy LaFerrara's body. At the time, the police didn't release the name of the victim or the manner in which he died. In fact, police didn't even know who the victim was. Brittany Stetler's neighbors were understandably worried. They saw police tape up, coroners, and other officers in the area, and the rumors were spreading up and down the street that the man may have been a victim of murder. The district attorney's office was notified, and the state police were brought in to assist in the investigation in what was a mystery in a quiet neighborhood. The woman who had found Troy in her backyard, the neighbors on Catawissa Avenue, 
Nobody had heard anything, no disputes or anything that would have caused alarm during the night hours of November 11th into the morning of November 12th. Police were certain that the man had been killed somewhere else and dumped in the backyard. Police were trying to identify the man, but he didn't have any identification on him and his wallet was missing. He did, however, have another key that would lead to solving his murder. His cell phone was found at the crime scene. Troy's phone was about to be looked through by police, but the first thing they noticed was that it had a pattern lock, which would make it difficult to access. Literally, while the officers were holding the phone, it started to ring. The caller on the other line identified herself as Colleen LaFerrara and said she was looking for her husband, Troy. She and Troy's family were sick with worry and had been looking for him since the night before. The police had to break the terrible news that her husband had been murdered. Now their victim had a name. The next day, an autopsy was conducted, revealing that the man had been stabbed to death in what appeared to be a lot more than just a robbery, and he had several defensive wounds on his hands. Underneath his body, a length of cable had been discovered, and his neck had wounds consistent with strangulation. The case was officially a homicide. Officials released the information. The body found in Sunbury was Troy La Ferrara, 42 years old. The police spoke with wife Colleen extensively, and she had no idea who would have any reason to murder her husband. He had no enemies. He didn't drink or do drugs. What police were able to find out through questioning was that Troy had last been seen at his mother's house the night of November 11th. There, he had used her computer, and by searching through the browser history, they saw that Troy had logged into his Facebook account and had visited the personal section on Craigslist. By gathering this data and retrieving the data from Troy's cell phone, investigators saw who he had his last contact with what he had been doing in the days leading up to his death, and they began identifying persons of interest. Troy's last communication was via text the night before his body was found. He had been texting with a woman, and it appeared that they were making plans to meet up at a local mall. On that Monday night, the night in question, he texted the woman that he was at the mall and was waiting for her. There was no further communication from his phone to anyone else. The police tracked down the phone number that Troy had been texting and discovered that it wasn't registered to a woman, but to a man named Elliot Barber. When they called the number, it went straight to voicemail, and the outgoing message was a woman's voice. Elliot Barber had a local address, and he lived with a few roommates. One of them, Valerie Smith, was on probation, which gave the police their in. They were able to get a search warrant for the home, but their search turned up nothing to connect to Troy's murder. Living in the home was Valerie Smith, Seamus Dietz, and a young newlywed couple, 22-year-old Elliot and 19-year-old Miranda Barber. While the home search was fruitless, the police did question the four residents and told them 
they were investigating the murder of a local man. All four of them told police the same thing. They didn't know the victim. As for alibis, Miranda told the police that on that night she had gone out with Elliot for his birthday and that she had left her baby at home with Valerie to babysit. By now, it was three weeks after the murder, and the police knew more than they were letting on while talking to Miranda. Through Troy's digital footprints and the information found on his phone, they knew that he had plans to meet with Miranda the night of November 11th and that she was the last person he ever contacted. Confronted with this information, Miranda admitted that she did meet someone online and they had planned to meet up at Denny's, but she didn't show. She said that since recently moving to PA, she had been making a bit of a living off of Craigslist, offering up companionship to men who were seeking it. During the interrogation, Miranda was cordial and cooperative, even when asked if she had anything to do with the murder of Troy LaFerrara. After a few hours, she tried to dismiss the officers, saying that she needed to go take care of her daughter. She was free to go, not under arrest, but the officers told her that they were confiscating her phone and getting a search warrant. Now, that is when she got upset, got teary loud, and began pleading that she needed to get to her baby. She was very offended. It was one of those how-dare-you reactions. She left the police station without her phone. Meanwhile, Elliot Barber was told by police that Miranda's number was the last number used by the victim. Elliot was cooperative as well, polite in his responses, and said that he didn't know anything about Troy. He did say that Miranda would occasionally get paid for services through Craigslist ad, but it was just companionship, good conversations, that she was only doing it to be an ear for unhappy men, never for sex. Yeah. Ultimately, he denied that he or Miranda had any involvement in Troy's murder and he was free to go. On Miranda's phone, police had their suspicions confirmed. The conversation between her and Troy was sexual in nature, including the price he'd pay her and what she would do for him in return. The plan was that they would meet in the parking lot at Susquehanna Valley Mall and go through with their planned transaction. In a surprising twist, Miranda returned to speak with the police hours later and confessed. Assuming that she knew with the police in possession of her phone, she wasn't getting away with anything. She had killed Troy. But her story, how it went down and why, changed several times over the course of the investigation. The first story during her initial confession was that she did go to meet Troy in a parking lot on the night of November 11th, and that he got into her car, a red Honda CRV. They drove off to a second location and everything seemed fine, but as soon as she put the car in park, according to her, it all went sideways. She says she told him, well, that she lied, that she was 16 years old to see if he'd still want to go through with their agreement. Miranda said he didn't care that she was 16 and proceeded to put one hand on her throat and with his other hand, he began groping her. She said she always has three knives in her car for protection and that when Troy attacked her, she grabbed one of the knives, stabbed him, but it, quote, didn't do anything. She continued to stab him until he died 
and said that she barely remembered anything else. She had blacked out. She was then charged with Troy's murder, which she said was done in self-defense. When police went to her home to speak with her husband, Elliot, he told them that he didn't think the killing was malicious and that he believed his wife was attacked and took necessary measures to defend herself. Now the police bring Elliot Barber back into the police station. When Elliot finally started coming around, he admitted that Miranda met Troy, but that he too was with them in the car, in the back seat covered up by a blanket, and he had participated in the murder. He said that sex was never a part of the equation. The only purpose in meeting Troy was to kill him. He told police that there was no motive, no self-defense. The pair had fantasized about killing someone together. They had talked about it for a long time, and it just happened to all fall into place when Troy responded to Miranda's ad. With two confessions that came out pretty easily, the police now had their two suspects in custody and preparation for a trial would be underway. The motive, as told by Miranda Barber, would change over time, bringing other crimes to light, but leaving the public with the ultimate question, what was the truth? The details of the murder, the undisputed facts, are pretty straightforward. Miranda placed an ad on Craigslist, and Troy answered. She would provide sex, he would provide $100. They messaged each other, exchanged numbers, and then texted back and forth. Through these texts, they decided on a meeting spot, the Susquehanna Valley Mall in Hummel's Wharf, Pennsylvania. Surveillance footage confirmed that Troy arrived there at 9.36 p.m. It was a Monday night, the mall was closed, and he parked his black Chevy S10 pickup next to Garfield's restaurant. He texted Miranda, telling her he was there waiting, and she responded that she'd be there soon. Upon her arrival, Troy got out of his truck and walked to Miranda's car, and she let him in. Police were able to confirm this by looking at security camera footage from the mall parking lot, although they couldn't make out the driver of the car that he got into. While in the car, Troy and Miranda exchanged their pleasantries and drove six miles to nearby Sunbury. It was there that Miranda said a code phrase out loud. The code phrase was said to her husband, Elliot, who was hiding in the back seat. When Miranda said, did you see the stars tonight? The plan was for Elliot to pop up from under the blanket and strangle Troy from behind with a cord while Miranda took a knife and stabbed him to death. According to Miranda, she had said the code phrase several times and Elliot didn't respond until she turned and hit him in the knee. Troy had no time to react as Elliot popped up from behind him, slipped the cord around Troy's throat, pulling as hard as he could and strangled him while Miranda stabbed him at least 20 times. The couple then drove around wondering where to dump Troy's body until finally coming across an alley where they left him on the ground and took his wallet, leaving behind his cell phone. According to investigators, Troy was still breathing when he was left there to die. The barbers then went and purchased cleaning supplies, which was captured on the store's security footage, also confirmed by the police. And they cleaned up the blood inside the Honda as best they could, but the police, upon searching the car, 
discovered that they did a poor job of cleaning, and there was plenty of forensic evidence left behind. After the attempted car cleaning, the couple went out to celebrate Elliot's birthday at a strip club, where according to a statement he made to the police, he, quote, had a burger, and it was fantastic. While held in Northumberland County Prison, Miranda requested an interview with a local paper, The Daily Item. This is where the story gets another version. Reporter Francis Scarcella visited her at the prison and met with her through plated glass. He was not allowed to take notes, but the conversation was recorded, and he was able to listen to that recording later. While interviewing Miranda, she revealed to Scarcella that she had joined a satanic cult at the age of 13, and that is where she learned to kill. Her story is that one of the cult leaders taught her how to murder by bringing her to an alley where they confronted a man who owed the leader money. The cult leader shot the man and then told Miranda to shoot him too. She says that she couldn't do it and that together, they put their hands on the gun and both pulled the trigger, and a murderer was born. She continued to talk to Scarcella, and she claimed that she had killed many others, at least 22 other men, but she had stopped counting. She said she spent her time between the ages of 13 and 19 murdering. Her victims were in Texas, North Carolina, and California, but the majority of them were in her home state of Alaska. Now Francis Scarcella was telling Miranda's story, and the police, the media, the public were now asking, had a prolific serial killer, a female serial killer no less, been touring the country murdering men? And who were the victims? Where were they? And of course, who was Miranda Barber really? Miranda Camille Dean Barber was born in 1994 in Alaska to parents Elizabeth and Sonny Dean. She grew up in North Pole, Alaska, and has an older sister, Ashley. To say Miranda had a troubled childhood would be putting it lightly. Her mother said that she was born with dislocated hips and was in a body cast from the ages of two to four. When she was four years old, she and her sister were sexually assaulted by their own uncle, Rick, the husband of their mother's sister. Rick was later charged with the crimes. Starting when she was 13, Miranda spent a lot of time in treatment facilities receiving therapy and medication reportedly for ADHD, depression, and schizophrenia. She was also a frequent runaway, disappearing for days at a time until her parents went out searching for her and brought her back home. There was, according to some family members, substance abuse issues, and Miranda's parents sought treatment for her addiction to heroin, as well as putting their household on a strict lockdown. In 2011, Elizabeth and Sonny Dean divorced, with Sonny moving down to Florida. Elizabeth sent her daughter Miranda to go live with family in North Carolina, where she seemed to be doing okay. It was there that she met Elliot Barber. He, too, had some troubles growing up. While he was a good student, he was seen as awkward, shy, and obsessed with the paranormal and the occult. Before he had met Miranda, he had a baby with a former girlfriend. That relationship went downhill, and as a result, Elliot struggled with depression until he met Miranda through mutual friends. When they met, Miranda had a baby girl from a previous relationship, a relationship with a man named Forrest, who, she told Scarcella, had been murdered. But 
Her own mother says that Forrest is very much alive and has contacted the family. When Elliot and Miranda met, it was instant chemistry. They were each young parents with a lot in common and had an intense attraction to each other. They dated for six months and got married on October 22, 2013, in Harnett County, North Carolina. Shortly after their nuptials, Elliot suggested that they move up north to Water Street in Selins Grove, Pennsylvania. They took Miranda's daughter and moved to PA and lived with Elliot's friends, Seamus Dietz and Valerie Smith. Three weeks after they were married, they met Troy LaFerrara. Now the media were running with the tales spun by Miranda Barber. She was named the female Craigslist killer, the satanic cult killer, you name it. Her husband, Elliot, told investigators that Miranda would sometimes seem possessed and that she had an alter ego that they referred to as Super Miranda. Acquaintances of both of theirs have said that they were not devil worshippers, but were into reading about Satanism and owned a Satanic Bible. The Satanic cult, well, there's nothing that backs up these claims, but it seems consistent with the rest of Miranda's personality. Her father says she has always been a compulsive liar and that, quote, Miranda lives in a fantasy world made up in her own mind. She craves attention, is selfish, dishonest, and manipulative. So does she lean on stories of shock as a crutch? As a way of being somebody, perhaps? Miranda's family has spoken to the media, and while they agree she has had her issues and she has struggled with mental illness and drug addiction, they are certain that she is not a serial killer. Her own sister, Ashley, has said that Miranda was obsessed with the TV show Dexter. No, I'm not blaming a TV show for turning a woman into a killer. What's actually more likely is that Miranda Barber was lost trying to find her way a victim of abuse herself, someone suffering from mental illness and who was obviously quite dangerous, but that maybe she, in a sense, looked up to characters like Dexter. Was this a way to give herself an identity? Miranda told the Daily Item reporter that on the trail of dead bodies she's left behind, one could find severed body parts near Anchorage, a man that was killed near a pier in Mexico Beach, Florida, and body parts tossed from a vehicle somewhere near Raleigh, North Carolina. She says that she only killed quote-unquote bad men. What strikes me about her claims of only killing people that are bad, well, yes, that sounds a lot like the fictional character of Dexter, but it also sounds like female serial killer Eileen Wernos. Her victims were all men, and her reasoning was that they each deserved to die. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that Miranda had a book or two on Wernos. And while it's possible that Troy LaFerrara was her first and only victim, it wouldn't be surprising to learn that she had at least one other victim somewhere in the U.S. Miranda Barber, however, simply isn't a serial killer. With all of the planning that went into Troy's murder, it was still a very disorganized crime. She used her own phone to communicate with him, which led police right to her. She killed him in her own car and hastily cleaned it up before going out for the night, possibly to establish an alibi. She has admitted, along with Elliot, that they didn't know where to dump the body and had to drive around to find a place. 
She and Elliot also left Troy's car at the mall. So she meets him there and doesn't even think about the surveillance cameras that would capture her. Does that sound like a serial killer? Are we supposed to believe that she killed more than 20 people in her teens? Lead investigator Travis Bremigen worked with law enforcement and the FBI in the mentioned states where Miranda says her victims were, and he has found no substance to the claims. By now, her claims have all been dismissed. So then what is this case really all about? What it came down to after the investigation, interviewing family and acquaintances of the two murderers, their own admissions, well, Miranda and Elliot Barber simply wanted to kill someone together. They wanted to cement their bond by sharing in this twisted experience together. Sadly, it also centers on a young woman who was troubled with a lot of mental illness, lack of parenting, according to her sister, substance abuse, sexual assault at a young age by who should have been a trusted adult. But here comes the question I'd like you to think about. Was Miranda Barber born a killer or was she made into one? Was it a combination of nature and nurture? Let's not forget that there's also Elliot Barber. The media really focused on Miranda when this case broke, but he was just as responsible. His friends and acquaintances of his say that he must have been influenced by his wife, that she's a master manipulator. But on the other hand, normal people aren't talked into murdering someone. Clearly, there was already darkness inside of Elliot and darkness inside of Miranda, and together they made a deadly combination. In August of 2014, Miranda and Elliot Barber both pled guilty to second-degree murder, which took the death penalty off the table as part of an agreement. In September, the Barbers were each sentenced by Northumberland County Judge Charles H. Saylor to life in prison without the possibility of parole, the mandatory sentence for second-degree murder. The sister of the victim, Holly LaFerrara, said during a victim impact statement, quote, If it was up to me, you would each be strapped to a lethal injection gurney or seated in an electric chair. Our family has had to come to grips with the fact that Troy was murdered for fun, strangled and stabbed, killed as a blood-bonding ritual for two individuals so twisted and sick that they do not deserve to be called human. And after the sentencing, Troy's wife, Colleen, spoke to reporters outside the courtroom saying that she will never feel closure and told the media that Troy was a good man and he didn't deserve what happened to him. He is buried at Whitmer's Evangelical Church Association Cemetery in Port Treverton. Miranda has said that if she were to get out in 20 years, had she pled not guilty and got a possibility of parole, that she would have done it again. In a BBC Three documentary, Miranda said that she killed Troy because she wanted to give her daughter a better life, and this was a way to get her adopted. Yet another so-called motive. At the end of the day, this is a sad case of a man seeking companionship and finding a brutal, violent demise. It's a case of two young people that coldly thought it would be romantic to murder someone together. It's a young woman who made up a bunch of stories to justify her crime, to give herself an edge who was too lost in life to find a real hero. 
Because of the passing of the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act of 2017 legislation, the personal section of Craigslist is no more. And people seeking companionship, a future spouse, or a one-night sexual encounter must look elsewhere. This decision was made mostly in part to the United States fighting sex trafficking of children. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. I'm headed to CrimeCon in a few days, so there will be no new episode next week, but I'll return the following week with another case from the Craigslist files. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, go ahead and leave a five-star review. It really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes or just want to say hi, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.